Morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. It's uh, the week of Thanksgiving, uh, November 24th, and in a couple of days, uh, hopefully we're gathering in a small way, and I emphasize small, to celebrate Thanksgiving. That doesn't mean you can zoom in uh, to people all over the, the country, all over the world. In fact, uh, last night, uh, uh, it, my family got together with a, a number of people in, in Colombia, my birth country, and we had about 20 people just saying hello. Uh, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving in Colombia, but they they were they knew that we did, and so they decided to do it on Tuesday. And it was a it was a great time for at least an hour. Uh, we didn't have the chance to send a turkey over there, but but it it, it happened. Uh, so just to emphasize that uh, that you have to be careful uh, over the next uh, two months, uh, probably even three months, until the vaccine is widely available and and sent out. And uh, we received some good news yesterday from the health department then uh, in all likelihood, once the FDA has uh, done the emergency authorization and the ACIP has ruled, uh, which is probably gonna happen right after the, the FDA uh, gives authorization, which in all, likelihood, in all likelihood will happen around December 10th, uh, then ACIP rules, ACIP then uh, makes recommendations, and then very short after that, the, uh, they actually ship out vaccine. And uh, we are expecting, uh, I, and I'm gonna cross my fingers, that we will actually have vaccine at Connecticut Children's around December 15th. And once we have that, uh, we don't know which of the products, could be Pfizer or Moderna, those are the two that are up and running right now, then we would make it available to uh, all the frontline personnel and uh, that obviously if you're in the emergency department, hospital medicine, if you're a pediatric surgeon, you're a nurse, you're, you know, you're an environmental services individual providing care uh, and helping us. Uh, and uh, all of you will be prioritized as a number one uh, individual for vaccines. And, and if you're, uh, we're also working with, uh, with the health department to be able to vaccinate members of our, of our CIN, clinically integrated network. So all the pediatricians that are in practice, then we would be able to offer such a vaccine to everyone. So we're very hopeful from that perspective, but till then, you need to be safe. And uh, it is important to keep uh, small gatherings. Uh, the governor actually uh, put, it was a very interesting slide and that's, uh, the, the, the guidance is keep it small for the holiday. And there was a map that was put by DPH uh, of the risk that someone at your 10 person gathering has COVID and for the, for the Hartford area, that would be 20% uh, based on current numbers. And uh, if you're in, in New London, 14%. If you are in uh, Litchfield County, 19%. In Fairfield County, 24%. That means, and that's just based on community spread, community outbreaks. So you have to be real careful. And people feel well, they don't know. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't have enough testing to test everyone that's coming to your house. So the recommendation, especially if you have individuals at risk, is keep it small, keep it safe. If you can test, that's great. But uh, you know, really, really be careful. So with with that, I, I'm going to now pass it on to uh, Dr. Weiss, who is going to introduce one of our newest pediatric surgeons, uh, Dr. Nod, who will be giving us a, a great presentation. Uh, it's in the title is Physician and Advocate Activism in Your Practice, Improving Access and Reducing Injury. Uh, and she's one of the newest. I think Richard now officially is the one that has been here the longest of the pediatric surgeons. And, um, I, Richard was a pediatric surgeon when I was a pediatric resident, and I'm an old guy already. So, uh, so Richard, I'm going to pass it on to you. Uh, we've known each other for a long time, and if you could introduce Dr. Nod for the Grand Rounds. Thank you. With uh, that interesting uh, introduction, Juan, thank you. Uh, I am very pleased to introduce Dr. Leslie Nod, who uh, joined our Division of Pediatric Surgery 
about a year ago. In a way, she is a replacement for my more senior colleague, Dr. Michael Bork, who is at this point completely retired, but might be watching today. Um, we were extremely happy to uh, welcome her, uh, as I said, about a year ago. And I'm hoping that uh, the past year, not just for uh, Leslie, uh, but for the rest of us is sort of an outlier in, over the future years of, uh, of uh, events. Dr. Nod came to us from Arkansas, uh, where she was uh, born, went to college, went to medical school at the University of Arkansas, and then she obtained a uh, prestigious surgical residency at the University of Cincinnati and subsequently did her pediatric surgery fellowship at Dallas Children's. So today, Dr. Nod is going to talk to us about advocacy, a topic for which she is very passionate. And Dr. Nod, take it away. Thank you, Rich. Uh, thank you, Dr. Salazar and Dr. Wise for the introduction and the opportunity to present today. to share a few objectives of my talk today will accomplish a lot in a short period of time. I'll share some examples of evidence-based policy. Also, hopefully I can help you identify some areas for advocacy that you may be interested in, recognize the opportunities to participate, and also learn how to discuss safe firearm, safe, uh, firearm safety in the clinical setting, identify tools and resources for advocacy, and learn how to craft your message. So why advocate? Unless someone who cares a whole awful lot Nothing is going to get better. The AAP also released an advocacy guide that uh, the link is here. It is very extensive and helpful. One of the top uh, slides I found was their reasons for advocacy. And I think one of these will strike a chord with you. Um, one, uh, it makes use of your expertise, builds on long-term success, fuels a sense of energy and community, influences policy offers an antidote to cynicism, shows strength in numbers, creates change, translates experience, and renews commitment. Basically, it's the, the prescription for burnout as well. So as a physician, you're already an advocate. You make phone calls for your patients to insurance companies, schools, other providers on their behalf. And it becomes activism when you apply that to a local, state, even federal level. Political views aside, physicians have a common interest in their patients, and children have very few powerful advocates. Here's the mortality trend of children over the last century. Certainly there have been great improvements in all age ranges. And here I just wanted to highlight a few policies that have made significant improvements, including Medicaid and CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program. These were possible and further supported by an evidence-based policy. Um, and what is that? Uh, well, it's kind of like the public health policy as well. You identify the problem, study it, um, whether that's using data systems, uh, monitor uh, the progress, and then develop a policy for change, collaborating with state, national programs, and then implement that plan. This is a coordinated effort, often using resources within the community, other healthcare providers, and the public. And then study the outcomes and document that, and that will help produ uh, future productivity. So a few examples of that were the seven great achievements in pediatric research that AAP highlights as one of their campaigns to uh, focus on pediatric research. Um, and we'll go over just a couple of these, but 
for yourself, identify what makes you an advocate? What makes you want to be activated? Is it the impact that it has on your patients? Is it the breadth of the potential impact? Looking at the top 10 causes of infant mortality, or me as a trauma surgeon, looking at the top factors in pediatric injury. Is it based on your experiences, a personal or professional experience, or experience of a friend or family member? Um, I'll share, I'm a relatively private person, but I'll share a few personal stories here with about my family because part of advocacy and speaking to your legislators is also crafting a story and making it personal. And I'll go into that at the end of this so that you can make a personal story using your clinical expertise, using your personal family stories, your patient stories to really hit home with your legislators when you're trying to help advance certain policies that you're passionate about. So right now, the AAP has a list of several top advocacy issues, and we'll hit on the top three here. Um, healthcare access and coverage for children, vaccines, and also gun violence prevention. So in the US, about a third of our children are covered by Medicaid or CHIP. CHIP kind of covers that gap where they're not eligible for Medicaid, but still uh, don't have uh, employer-sponsored insurance. The majority of patients that are on these Medicaid and CHIP programs have a full-time worker in the household. In Connecticut, about 40% of our children are on Medicaid or Husky, that's our CHIP. And about half of those have disabilities or special needs. And there's an alarming trend now in America. Since 2017, there has been an increased rate of uninsured children. And that coincided with a decrease in enrollment with Medicaid and CHIP, even in Connecticut, in 2018, enrollment fell by 1,500. Overall in the U.S., there's a 5.7% rate of uninsured children, and that's the recent data as of 2019. In Connecticut, we're slightly better than the national average. Our uninsured rate for children is 3.5%. What does that mean for our children? Um, without insurance, they have unmet health needs. They're going to have more hospital visits, likely. They may have uh, health issues that are not addressed that affects their academic success, their development as productive adults, and can also affect their work uh, time away from school and their parents' time away from work. So our need here is to eliminate some of the enrollment barriers, and that's working with reporting requirements, uh, budget cuts, blocking grants, or the cap on Medicaid funding. And there's also a lack of public outreach. And to 2020, are we going to have more uninsured children? Absolutely. Due to COVID, there are many job losses and a loss of employer coverage for health insurance. They're estimating that approximately 300,000 children may be uninsured due to the pandemic alone. And there's some additional limitations. Uh, there's not a national reporting system for unemployment unemployed families to help get them public coverage uh, and let them know of their options for Medicaid. There are difficulties uh, in applying for unemployment benefits, and that can further deter families from applying for Medicaid and CHIP. There's less access to school-based services, especially as more schools are going virtual. And community pediatricians offices, many are closing, um, so access is also an issue. There is a little help on this front. The federal law does prohibit disenrollment from Medicaid during the pandemic, but that's only a partial fix. It doesn't cover CHIP programs, and it's uh, only effective uh, during the, the pandemic. So recently, CHIP, uh, two years ago, did have their funding extended to 2023. However, uh, the match rate will decrease over time, so that is still an advocacy need. 
And as Dr. Salazar has mentioned in one of our previous um, town hall meetings, the Affordable Care Act is under um, in the courts right now. How does this affect children? And I'd like to reiterate the three top ways that it affects our children. It protects them from their pre-existing conditions and being excluded from insurance coverage based on that. It also allows children to remain on their parents' insurance until they're 26 years old. And it eliminates uh, the policy spending caps so that patients, especially our oncology patients, or some of our disabled patients, uh, they may reach a cap and uh, not have be qualified for coverage if this is eliminated. So an advocacy need is supporting CHIP funding, ongoing funding, and these provisions of the Affordable Care Act. Also, telehealth is something that we as providers have been able to offer to our patients during the pandemic. And there's a uh, request and a push to try to extend some of the exceptions that were made during the pandemic to allow us to continue offering the breadth of telehealth that we are currently doing. So one of the other top advocacy issues for AAP and for us as pediatricians, pediatric surgeons, are vaccines. Recently with the coronavirus, um, the AAP president, Dr. Goza, urged that children start to be included in the COVID-19 vaccine trials. Uh, they are not included right now. I believe I heard just this a couple days ago, there is one company that is starting to enroll children in the trials, uh, but this could be a delay in access to pediatric patients. And there are six other societies that have sent a letter to Operation Warp Speed, stressing the importance of following a scientific process for safety, reviewing protocols, so that we can increase public confidence in distributing and accepting the COVID-19 vaccines. In a more general note, uh, there's a Vaccines Act of 2019 that uh, is designed in a way that it will help uh, research different areas where there are uh, lack of public awareness um, or the, of the importance of vaccines and also increase the vaccination rates uh, across the lifespan. It'll help us to better understand the, the hesitancy of some areas um, for receiving vaccines and establish a national vaccine rate surveillance system through the CDC that will help ID those communities that are underutilizing vaccinations and see if there's misinformation that's being disseminated in the areas. It also supports grants and evidence-based public awareness campaigns. So let's say this is an issue for you, that you think vaccines are very important, you want to be more involved on this. Go to govtrack.us. You can, here at the bottom, put in your address, you'll find your representatives, your legislators, and you can even put in that vaccine bill here and sign up for email alerts and updates. Um, you can be uh, also on this uh, mobile app. Um, there are ways that you can save your favorites, track the bills, track your legislators, see what they're doing. You can, uh, through here and through AAP, I'll get to this slide in a second and show an example, even craft letters to send to your legislators and they'll already include some of the form data that the statistics, some of the um, societal information that they're supporting the, the Vaccine Act in it. So you can then modify it, add your personal notes, and then send it to your legislators. And here I wanted to share an example of the evidence-based policy system and how it worked uh, and continues to work for decreasing uh, motor vehicle collision injuries. One, they studied the problem. They looked at MVCs and it was leading cause of death in children. They researched it. They used crash test dummies, driver passenger behaviors, and then developed policies. Then they studied those policies, public awareness campaigns like Click It or Ticket, 
and they showed the outcome. They showed the effectiveness of that policy, and it reduced injuries by 50% or 70%, depending on the age group. And that's um, the data that can support further policy. And that's a simple example of uh, the evidence-based policy that can be applied to many topics and issues. Dr. Flora Winston recently presented a Grand Rounds on a graduated driver's license in Connecticut that was excellent. Here, if you'd like to uh, watch it again, it's on our uh, intranet. Again, here we study the problems of teens. They have the lowest rate of seatbelt use. Only about 60% of high school kids wear their seatbelts. They're also more distracted. They're more likely to text and drive. Studying the outcomes. A Cochrane review looked at 13 different graduated driver's license programs and showed there is a total crash reduction of 25 to 40%. The more provisions in the policy, the greater the reduction of injury. So in Connecticut, the advocates for highway and auto safety scored Connecticut as a yellow. Could have been red or green, so we're in the middle. And um, we had some areas that we can improve our graduated driver's license policy, and they're listed here. So as a physician advocate, if teen driver safety is something that you wanted to address in your practice, how do you do that? On a practice level, you can incorporate it into your anticipatory guidance. Know the Connecticut laws for the teen drivers, the licensing, distribute educational material, and alert parents to some of the high-risk situations. On the community level, this um, AAP policy statement has an extensive list of resources as well for this. On the community level, you can work with the schools, collaborate with police and media, and on a state and federal level, supporting primary enforcement for all safety seatbelts, for all safety belts, for all occupants. And Connecticut has the need for this as well. Right now, it's just front seat passengers. So the third uh, topic we'll cover today for this in the top of AAP advocacy issues is gun violence prevention. And here, I'll share one more disclosure. Um, you heard that I'm from Arkansas, so it may not come as a surprise. I am a firearms owner, um, but I store them safely. Um, locked, unloaded with the ammunition separately. And that's the key. I like to refer to this quote from our former US Surgeon General that you cannot talk about the dangers of snake poisoning and not mention snakes. So we're gonna talk about guns. I also would like to uh, share that Dr. Alex Hogan gave an excellent uh, presentation about firearm safety that is very thorough and extensive. Mine is focusing on advocacy, but giving you a few fast facts so that you can have that in your practice. But his presentation is extensive. I please encourage you to go to the link here and watch it from the pediatricians and PJs. So the scope of the problem, firearm injury, is the second leading cause of trauma death in pediatrics. They have a high fatality rate. And the youngest children less than 10 years of age, the fatality rate is 37%. That's even higher if the intention is suicide, up to 85 to 95% fatality rate. Half of these patients are discharged with a disability. Some more fast facts. One in three homes with children have guns. Many are unlocked and loaded. Of the parents with guns, about 40% keep them unlocked. A quarter of them keep them loaded. Three and four children uh, ages five, as young as five years of age know where the guns are kept. And 80% of unintentional firearm deaths in kids occur in the home. These are my twin, twin nieces and nephews for Halloween. They're right about three years of age. They have some toy guns. Studies have shown us the kids cannot distinguish a toy from a real gun. And 
kids, even as young as five years of age, likely know where the gun is stored. So that's why the importance of keeping it locked up, keeping it safe, uh, loaded, unloaded, locked, stored separately from the ammunition is critical. It's estimated that over 4 million children live in homes with guns that are loaded and unlocked. And over the last decade, there has been a significant increase in the number of adolescent suicides. It has increased 82%. So how can we keep our kids safe? What can we do from an advocacy, from a policy perspective? There are a couple of policies that I'll share here. The child access prevention laws and extreme risk protective orders. In Connecticut, we have a risk warrant that is similar um, for a means of reducing access to firearms for our children. Here, a cross-sectional study examined many different um, CAP policies and linked it with pediatric firearm injuries. In a study period, they found and studied just under 7,000 pediatric firearm injuries. And they found there's a difference between strong CAP laws and weak CAP laws. Let me take one step back. What is a CAP law? Child Access Prevention Law. It's a law that um, is in place to hold some legal liability to the gun owner if a child accesses and uses a handgun. Um, and there are different variations of that, those laws. If there's a strong law, there's criminal liability uh, if the child gains access to a negligently stored firearm. That's a strong law. The weaker laws, and those are in the gray states here, um, it's only if they're recklessly provided or unintentionally uh, given the firearm. So the study showed that stronger cap laws are associated with a significant reduction, 30% reduction in pediatric firearm injuries. That was both for self-inflicted firearm injuries and unintentional. If the gun is locked up and they don't know where the key is, it's hard for an adolescent to find the gun and use it. There was a more recent study that um, did a similar comparison um, of what was more broader and it showed approximately a 15% reduction in the pediatric firearm injury rates with strong cap laws. Connecticut passed our law in 1990, and it is uh, deemed as strong. However, uh, last year it became even stronger with Ethan's law. Ethan Song, uh, many of you probably know his story. He was unintentionally shot uh, and intentionally shot himself in 2018 while he was at a friend's house handling one of three firearms that he and a friend knew or kept in a bedroom closet. Because our law in Connecticut previously had said the gun must be loaded and a minor was defined as someone 16 years or younger, um, the cap law did not apply to Ethan's situation. So his parents got activated and they used advocacy and activism and changed the law. They show, shared their personal story and with bipartisan support, the state legislature passed Ethan's law last year. Now our cap laws include both loaded and unloaded guns and expands the definition of a minor to 18 years of age and younger. So suicide for intentional uh, firearm injury in our adolescents. Suicide is the second leading cause of death and kids as young as 10 years old. Um, I heard the story of a patient with an ostomy, a stoma, which I give children stomas. He was tormented and bullied so much that he killed himself at 10 years of age. Um, so this is a real problem for even the youngest kids. Also looking at this map, you can see the red states are the states that have the highest rate of firearm by suicide. It's almost an inverse of the next map that I'll show you of where there are state suicide prevention programs. That's another potential need for advocacy. 
I shared earlier that the fatality results are uh, for suicide with firearms are very high, 95% of the time. If the next most, most lethal, lethal means was used for suicide, there would be a mortality reduction of 32% to our minors. This is a picture of three of my nieces. They look really happy. Uh, and uh, the pandemic's hard on everyone. Um, one of them told us a few months ago that she was uh, having troubles, that she was questioning life. We got her help. She had no warning signs. She looks like this all the time. Even if you saw her the day after she told us that, she looks just like that. So what the need is, consider approaches to suicide prevention that are independent of identifying the children at risk. What is that? Safe storage, reducing access to them. Keep your guns locked, unloaded, and separate from your ammo. And here's the full uh, collection of my seven nieces and nephews. I'm just highlighting the summary so far. Guns, if they're loaded and unlocked in the homes, and there's a higher prevalence that children may find them, use them. Guns are high uh, fatality means for suicide. Means matters. What factors are modifiable to prevent firearm injury? So this is where our evidence-based policy comes into play with our child access prevention laws and extreme risk protective orders. A few uh, more fast facts, firearms availability. And there was a systematic review that looked at homes where someone had died by firearm suicide. And there was a, a pooled odds ratio that if there is a gun in the home, there is a odds ratio of 3.2 that um, they will, uh, the suicide will be successful if they use that firearm. So a higher risk of suicide if a gun is even in the home. In California, they were able to collect um, similar information from the coroner's office, medical examiner's office, and police reports. And they studied in these homes where there was a firearm suicide, what was the situation? What are the events surrounding that? And most of these events happen in the home or at a friend's house. Who was the owner of the firearm? Only six or only 9% of the time was the owner, the victim, especially in older males. But 31% of the time, it was still in the household of the victim, usually a family member. And the remainder of the time, it was unknown where it was. So for the extreme risk protective orders, the goal is to identify a person at risk. Uh, and remove the firearms from their immediate uh, environment and to mitigate injury. In 1999, Connecticut was the first state to pass risk warrants. It requires a petitioner, either a state attorney or two law enforcement officers. Then it goes through a process, an independent investigation to find probable cause. A judge will then issue the risk warrant and the firearms are retained by law enforcement. And there's a hearing within 14 days to see if uh, it's appropriate to return the firearms or if they can be held for up to one year. After the Virginia Tech shooting, this policy was really enforced much better in Connecticut. You can see an increase in 2007 of the number of guns that were removed due to extreme risk protective orders. And the study estimated that during this time frame, 72 gun suicides were averted. And that for every 10 extreme risk protective orders issued, one suicide was prevented. So in Connecticut right now, physicians cannot petition for an extreme risk protective order. We can notify authorities. Uh, but in Maryland in 2018, physicians were able to file their own uh, extreme risk protective order. And they studied what's known about that. And amongst the physicians, most of them weren't familiar with the laws at all. 
but 92% said they had encountered at least a few patients during that time frame in that year that would have benefited from an extreme risk protective order. And the majority were likely or somewhat likely to actually file the order. Some of the barriers, time, paperwork, hearings, who has time for that? Um, and then they were afraid it may negatively affect the patient relationship. Some of the solutions proposed, could there be a designated coordinator uh, for uh, some of the paperwork, um, increased training, remote court hearings could be a time saver, and access to legal counsel. And this is a potential need for Connecticut to improve our extreme risk protective order policy as well. For a temporary transfer of firearms outside of the home to prevent suicide, um, a study found that most clinicians were very uh, confused on what the policies were, what the process was to do that. So this paper reviews all 50 states and summarizes how it works in each state. In Connecticut, we have a permitted system. Um, so the person that would receive the firearms transfer would need to have a permit. So education and protocols about temporary transfers of firearms outside of a home from a suicidal patient or a depressed patient um, is a need. Now I'll shift gears a little bit and talk about counseling, uh, counseling parents regarding firearm safety. And yes, it is allowed. Uh, the US Court of Appeals upheld the physician's First Amendment right to discuss firearm safety for the good of our patients in 2017. And I like Judge's prior quote, therefore I'll, I'll read it here and I have it up for you to view as well. Health-related information is more important than most topics because it affects matters of life and death. Doctors help patients make deeply personal decisions and their candor is crucial. If anything, the doctor-patient relationship improve, uh, provides more justification for free speech, not less. And that's been upheld in many courts now. So we can ask about firearms. How do we do it? Um, when to ask. Um, look at patients that have high risk uh, factors. Do they have suicidal ideations? Uh, is there a history of violence? their history of alcohol or drug abuse, mental illness, or just looking at a high-risk group. Kids, kids and adolescents themselves is a high-risk group, and that could be a reason for asking. And also young African-American men are a high-risk group. And don't just ask, inform. It's an educational discussion that you have with your families. And this resource here also shares a lot of patient materials, safe storage options, and additional resources, and shares much more in depth on how to have this conversation if you'd like more information. So in your practice, address firearm safety as anticipatory guidance for all ages, because as we've seen, children and adolescents are at high risk. They're a high risk group. Ask about the presence of firearms in the home and counsel gun owners about safe storage, keeping the guns unloaded, locked, and ammunition locked separately. Lethal means counseling in homes with a depressed child is critical. That way you can remove the guns remove the most fatal means of suicide from their home. Educate family that suicide's attempts with a gun are very fatal and that the presence, this sheer presence of the gun in the home increases the risk of suicide among adolescents. Also instruct the parents to ask if they're not gun owners, they can ask still if their kid's going to into someone else's house, if that other house has firearms in the home and how they're stored. Some of the barriers to physician counseling on firearm injury prevention is time. One, you can incorporate into routine, routine anticipatory guidance or screen just the high-risk groups. There can be educational materials that are visible in the office, handouts provided, videos, or emails. Another barrier was clinician 
unfamiliarity with firearms, with what to say, with how to say it. We can receive training. Uh, we also have referral resources at our disposal, such as mental health resources, social services, uh, substance abuse services. A short mnemonic to remember as well is the five L's. How do you counsel? Ask if the gun's locked, loaded. Are there little children around? Is anyone feeling low? And is the owner a learned owner? There was also concern for the doctor-patient relationship. Studies have shown the majority of families are open to a non-judgmental educational conversation, especially if you frame it that children are a high-risk group and that you're asking all, all of your patients these questions or you're asking the high-risk group patients these questions, especially if there's anxiety or depression as a risk factor. You're also focusing on the well-being of the child, so framing it as that will also um, strengthen the doctor-patient relationship. And acknowledging there may be some local cultural norms. In Arkansas, where I'm from, in Texas, where I've changed, there are a few different cultural norms than here in Connecticut, where I live now. So just acknowledging those. Um, there may be hunters, um, other reasons for firearms in the home. Um, so addressing this is a non-judgmental way. Informing and educating and having the conversation is the first step. There are also firearm safety programs and campaigns uh, to call upon. I mentioned the ASK campaign, Ask Saves Lives, and they show that 93% of parents, including gun owners, were comfortable with having this conversation. Means Matters, this focuses on the high fatality rate of firearms, fi suicide by firearms. This is a Harvard Injury Control uh, Research Center project. It shares education, but also tools um, to aid the conversation. A Be Smart program. Um, Easy mnemonic here is to be smart. And this is a campaign nationwide. I was part of it as part of the, the Trauma East program in Texas where we presented this and um, again, had a personal story from a mom uh, for a high school project. We spoke to over um, 300 high school students uh, about firearm safety. So be smart, secure guns in the home, model responsible behavior, ask about unsecured guns in other homes and recognize the role of guns in suicide. Tell everyone to be smart. And the Firearm Safety Among Children and Teens Consortium is another resource. So switching gears now to talk about activism. I'll quote Thomas Jefferson now. Uh, we in America do not have government by the majority. We have government by the majority who participate. So highlighting our record turnout for 2020 in Connecticut with 80% of our uh, um, constituents voting. So who, who feels activated? Hopefully you found something that gets you to um, find some interest in advocacy and policy, uh, a way that you want to be more involved. How do you do that? Um, you can influence policy by research, demonstrating cost savings, collaborating with community organizations, and uh, communicating with the policymakers. You can affect legislation by influencing the views of our policymakers. And how does it work? You can work it from all angles, social media, in person, by phone, and in writing. Okay, maybe not in person for the next few months, but you can maximize your influence and your impact. Um, studies have shown that if you tweet 10 to 30 similar posts in a short period of time, Congress will recognize it. Call them. They tally their daily calls. You may not speak to your Congre uh, congressperson directly. They tally their calls. You get a voicemail, leave a voicemail. They tally those as well. Leave your address, your zip code, so they know that you are a constituent. Call before they've made a public stance on a topic. And this is where that mobile tracker, um, govtrack.us, is helpful because you see where it is. Have they voted on it? 
Is it coming to the Senate floor next week? Um, then that's when you start your calls, start your writing. For writing, I'll uh, share an example in a moment. Um, for social media, the majority of senators and representatives use Twitter. About 90, over 95% of them used it in 2015. And currently our Connecticut legislators all have a Twitter handle and a Facebook address here. So the Advocacy Action Center at AAP is a great resource. Log in with your AAP ID and you can track bills, see if there's bipartisan support, who are the co-sponsors, but also it makes letter writing easy. If you log in, it shows you who your senators are. I did this one as I was presenting this, uh, creating this presentation. And uh, which topic did I pick? There have several topics that you can pick. Just click the one that you want. AAP will auto load most of the data supporting their stance, their advocacy ask. Um, and you can then modify the email, add your personal stories and send it to your legislators. They make it easy. How do you tell your story? Um, this is uh, crafting your story so that you win the hearts, minds, and more importantly, the votes of Congress. So you develop your ask, begin with the end in mind. Focus on just one or two legislative issues and have a good opening, set the stage. Be brief, but impactful. And paint a clear picture, keep it real, give them all the detail. If you're discussing, again, me as the trauma surgeon, if I'm discussing a trauma patient that I saw, if they were getting CPR in the ER, sharing all of those details makes it real to them. Um, and then what's at risk for the patient, for the family, even for you as the provider? And the struggle, identify the conflict, make a connection, and connect that to the people, their constituents. Then there's the discovery, where you share what you've learned, a potential solution, um, how can we win? And then finish with a hook, a powerful ending sentence. If that was too complicated, keep it simple. Spit, storytelling. Specific, personal, informative, and timely. The spit technique. Personal stories motivate. Again, Kristen and Michael Song, share your patient experiences. And stick a price tag on it. Money motivates. The cost of injury in the United States was $670 billion. Again, sticking a price uh, tag on it. AMA has size and money, and that can uh, play into policy power. Their assets are a trillion dollars as of last year with revenues of $361 million. And we think we're big in AAP with 66,000 members. AMA has 200,000 members. So they're a, a big force and, um, and they have our interest in mind. They aren't as specific to pediatrics, but they have excellent resources and are a big voice for us in our legislation. Ways that you can, after the pandemic, in person, go to DC and advocate, implement the spit technique uh, with your, uh, or your um, legislators. AAP has an advocacy summit each spring. Uh, this has a day where you actually lobby on Capitol Hill. So does the American College of Surgeons. So is anyone feeling pumped up right now? I hope so. I can't see you, but I feel that you're really pumped up right now. So participate in advocacy um, for your patients, for your professional priorities, your individual interests. Prevent burnout. Try it. See if you enjoy the process. This was a recent selfie campaign from CCMC, Be a Voice for Kids. I just picked some people that I knew, but also some um, reasons for voting for kids that really hit home. So find your advocacy flavor. See if you'd like the process. 
contact me with any questions. And there's a resource page here, but I'll stop here and ask for, uh, if I can entertain any questions. Wow, that was uh, fantastic, uh, uh, Dr. Nod. Really appreciate it. And thank you. Uh, you spoke like a true pediatrician. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I'm, I have to, uh, I'm going to, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to call Dr. Fink and thank her for recruiting you. <laughs> thank you. Great, great catch. Uh, we have uh, a few questions for you, and, uh, and uh, I think Dr. Weiss probably should, will be on as well. The uh, first of all, we did send, by the way, the or somebody sent the AAP link, the AAP link to uh, advocacy. I'm not sure who, who that was, but thank you for doing that. Or maybe it was you. Uh, no, okay. Dr. Uh, David Kroll, it's a comment. Uh, Dr. Nod is a pediatric surgeon interested in advocacy. You're joining a tremendous history of pediatric surgeon, surgeon advocates, including Dr. Barbara Barlow, who founded the Injury Free Coalition for Kids. Um, Dr. C. Everett Koop, former Sur Surgeon General of the U.S. and many others, keep up the great work and thank you for your advocacy. We're glad you're here. So that so that's from Dr. Crow. I don't know if you met him yet, but uh, he's he's relatively new also, and so it'll be a good connection for you to make. Absolutely, I actually should have put a picture of Barbara Barlow um, in my presentation. I met her at our APSA meeting this last year, where I was um, honored to be able to give a presentation about her accomplishments. Uh, in her lifetime when she received uh, one of our awards at APSA. She, she's incredible. Uh, when one of our pediatricians, I, I do not ask whether anyone has a gun in the house. However, I do discuss gun violence, and I do say that if you have a gun in the house, you need to start unloading it, um, uh, uh, start unloading it in, in, with a bullet in a different place. So comments on that, if you can just sort of, uh, you know, once again, repeat what you said about gun safety. And that's another technique, to not even ask them directly, do they have one, but just to give general guidance to everyone. And then they know that it's not about if they have a gun or not. It's not a uh, judgmental conversation. Um, going a, a step further as well to say that the three keys of keeping it unloaded, locked, and the ammunition locked and stored separately is great to incorporate into that discussion. Uh, excellent. The, uh, the question is, how do I start an uh, ER, uh, ERPO? Uh, can, it, can it be anonymous? An extreme risk protective order can be um, started with, uh, I would first talk to our social, uh, social workers because they can start the process, but the actual petition needs to be filed by either the um, attorney, state attorney, or two police officers. And our social workers and mental health experts can help start that process um, so that it can be uh, followed through. Most of them um, are actually filed by a family member where a family member calls the police um, and shares their concern. Um, and I think it would be uh, a, a huge area that physicians can become involved in that as well. Appreciate it. And um, so, you know, the, 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 com the comment I think that I'll make, and, and so I was really pleased with your presentation of being open-minded and, and you know, the fact that you share that you have your own gun, but you keep it safe. Um, and um, there are a number of people that I work with in, in my lab and in other areas who, um, they're all, um, you know, incredibly accomplished women that all have guns. And so I feel, I feel very protected, but they're all very safely kept. Uh, and, and I think having a discussion that, it's, uh, that is not so, not so partisan and political, but actually acknowledges that, you know, this, that this is a reality and that safety is really what's important here. It's, it's a really fresh approach. So maybe you can expand on that, on that thought. It is, and I, I hope that some of the data that we have uh, will help make this an evidence-based discussion as well, a non-judgmental discussion. Just recently, um, we have 
uh, gained more funding opportunities for firearm injury prevention. Um, previously, this was an area that was significantly underfunded, so we did not have a robust amount of data to pull from. But if our conversations and our policies and our actions are based on the data, it no longer becomes a partisan issue, it becomes an issue of child safety. Uh, really appreciate that. And, you know, in these days of, uh, of partisanship and, uh, and polarization, I think uh, uh, one of the things that we can all come into uh, and, and get ourselves around is that, you know, we are all for children's safety, for children's health care. And, and that's a common ground, no matter who you are, where you're coming from. Uh, so I appreciate that. I think that was the, uh, the last question. Uh, Richard, I don't know if you're on, if you want to ask a, a question or have an additional comment. No, great uh, presentation, Dr. Nod. Uh, I, I do not have any additional questions, but if anybody wants to type one into the chat, we'll be happy to have her answer it. I finished on time. <laughs> you don't bring that into the yard, do you? No. Okay, very good. All right, with that, uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Nod, for an excellent presentation. Thank you, Dr. Weiss, for hosting it. Really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Uh, please have a very safe uh, holiday. Uh, we will see you, uh, uh, for some of you, at 2 o'clock. We do have a town hall with Dr. John Shriver and I. We're going to you know, actually talk about the issues of, uh, of safety uh, and, and, uh, for this holiday. So if you, if you have access to the intranet, uh, you can actually log into that. Uh, if not, we'll meet again uh, on Tuesday for Grand Rounds, and then the Ask the Expert session will be a week from Friday. Actually, we, we do have a, a Rob Ketter sent the, just the last comment. The Public Policy Committee here at Connecticut Children's invites anyone to sign up to become an advocacy champion, and he sends the, the website. So, Rob, thank you very much for that, for that comment. And with that, I'll say goodbye to everyone. Be safe, and happy Thanksgiving. Take care. Thank you.